Knowing how to stretch your budget lets you travel more often. But don't be surprised if you have to temper your expectations while you're seeing the world. You can't be the kind of person that's going to storm down to the, the front desk and say, your internet is down. You have to just be like, yep, the internet is down. That's just the way things go. I'm on vacation. Frugal traveler Seth Kugel reminds us what it takes to be a good budget traveler in just a bit. And after more than 30 years of living in Japan, Pico Iyer appreciates that it's not an easy place for outsiders to figure out. There's something about Japan where the more you find out about it, of course, the more you realize how much you'll never know. And guides from Ireland recommend where to go. It'll be more wild than the Ring of Kerry and maybe less frequented. And what to do. Irish traditional music has probably never been in a stronger place than it is today. There's great interest among young people. When you visit the Emerald Isle, it's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. We'll look at life in two very different island nations that each offer their own kind of rewards for travelers coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Guides from Ireland will take your calls a little later in the hour to help you plan a great getaway to the Emerald Isle. And while Japan may not throw the door open for tourists with the same level of enthusiasm as they do in Ireland, author Pico Iyer shares what more than 30 years in Japan have shown him, things that might baffle or amuse visitors about its people and customs. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a return visit from Seth Kugel. The one-time frugal traveler for the New York Times has written Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. In it, he focuses on eight points to consider to reignite a sense of spontaneous adventure without being detoured by travel apps and corporate loyalty points. And to show how traveling on a budget will get you closer to the people and to the places you're there to visit. Hey, Seth, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, no problem. Good to be here. So I just love this in your book. Uh, you've got eight points that help you identify who can really be a budget traveler. And I thought we'd just go through them. Number one, a non-germophobe. What does that mean? Well, that means that the less money you spend, the less clean things are going to be. So if you are willing to, you know, take a shower in a bathroom, in the motel bathroom, that the curtain is a little bit moldy, that's going to make you a much better budget traveler. I was on a, a boat in China uh, and it was the cheap boat. It wasn't the cruise boat. I was brought to my room and there were two children sleeping in my bed and uh, they were kicked out, but the bed was not remade. So I had to get right into that bed that they were already sleeping in. <laughs> now, some people would have a tough time with that. Some people just say, hey, it's a bed. And that's not right or wrong. It depends on who you are. I remember I was in Washington, D.C. and somebody put me in a real cheap hotel and it was frankly dirty. And it was perfectly safe and decent hotel, but it was just ratty. And I was all stressed out. And I thought, I'm not that stressed out when I go to a, a ratty hotel in, in Morocco or Turkey, but here it was different. And it really is a, a matter of, are you a germophobe or not? Right. But it is also somewhat worrisome if you're in Washington, D.C. and the room is disgusting. That is worrisome. But I'll tell you, a lot of people wear their, they take uh, flip-flops along so they don't pick up germs in the shower stall. I've spent 100 nights a year in strange showers barefoot and never picked up anything. How about you? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I tend not to get sick on the road. Actually, that's number three, strong-stomached. Talk about strong-stomached. If you want to be a budget traveler, you've got to be strong-stomached. Right. I mean, I tend to eat everywhere I go, anything I see, with certain exceptions. I do not eat shellfish that has been sitting in the sun for a long time. Mm. But that's just me. I mean, I recognize that many people are scared of doing that for good reason. They're going to end up missing their whole trip, uh, you know, in the hotel bathroom. 
So it's just another thing that it's helpful if you're strong stomached. But if you know you're not, then skip that part of being a budget traveler. There's plenty of other ways to save money. How about uh, number two is flexible sleeper. Yeah. Well, you know, I take a lot of overnight buses and I cannot possibly sleep in them. I have a terrible time sleeping in buses. Luckily, I can get away with, I can get through a whole day on just a couple of hours sleep. So those are the two kinds of, if you're the kind of person that can literally sleep anywhere, then you're in great shape as a budget traveler because you will have to sleep in some crazy places. If, on the other hand, you're able, like I am, to sort of get by on one or two hours sleep, at least for one day, then you're also going to be a good budget traveler. I'm a kind of traveler that needs my seven hours of sleep a night, and I'm the kind of traveler that has no problem getting some pharmaceutical help to get that sleep. So if you have your favorite uh, sleeping medicine, I just find that it gets me my beauty rest, and that keeps me healthy. You know, I agree. I'm, I'm a recent convert to the pharmaceutical help to sleep, and it's because I hadn't found the one that really uh, felt okay. I had a lot of trouble with some, and I finally got one. And so now, yes, I, too, do take a pill to sleep. And, in and, and what, is your, what is your sleeping pill of choice? Oh, it's just Ambien. I don't know how it took me so long to get to it. I love uh, Ambien. I now, Ambien's dangerous. You've got to be very careful about that. But a little tiny bit of Ambien, a quarter of a tablet, just gives me right. that extra three hours when I wake up and it's noisy or the sun's out and I need a couple more hours if I want to get a little sleep on the plane. You know, I hate to promote a pharmaceutical pill to help you sleep. And you got to be very careful about it, but uh, be open to it because I think a worse problem is not having your sleep if you want to stay healthy. Seth Kugel is the author of Rediscovering Travel, and he writes a blog of travel tips on his website, sethkugel.com. He's helping us recognize the rewards of budget travel right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Point four on Seth Kugel's eight characteristics that raise your potential to be a budget traveler is Luddite. What? To be a Luddite or not to be a Luddite? <laughs> what is that? Well, no. Uh, yeah, you want to be uh, willing to go without technology. Uh, and the simplest example is a lot of Internet service and a lot of cheap hotels around the world is, uh, you know, either terrible or non-existent. And you can't panic if that happens. You can't be the kind of person that's going to storm down to the, the front desk and say, your Internet is down. You have to just be like, yep, the Internet is down. That's just the way things go. I'm on vacation. And you're more likely to save money that way. Point five. Yes. Highly organized. Yeah. Well, this is really not my strength. And so I am totally out on this one. But uh, what I really mean here is you bring everything you need and you don't have to buy anything. I spend so much money. So much money, like on the charger I forgot, uh, on the sweater that I, you know, I didn't check the weather forecast and it's colder than I thought. Uh, and also, I miss flights. I have, it doesn't happen that often, mm -hmm. but I do miss flights and then that's really going to cost you. Just, yeah, we've got some people, um, they're just a hot mess. I mean, they're just, they're, their things are unzipped, they're, they've got stuff <laughs> strewn all over the place and, and they lose things and they miss connections and so on. Um, I'm very, I'm very sort of focused in this regard. Uh, you know, a lot of times you have an adapter plugged into the wall and if you're dashing out of the hotel in the morning, you pull out your, your cord, but you leave the adapter in the wall. And rather than think about all that time, you could actually, um, duct tape the adapter to the cord or you could get, uh, uh oh. around that. But there's, there's ways that well, you just cut out the stress and the, and the mental overhead. The true sign of someone who's very badly organized is they don't actually know how they lost something. They just have absolutely no idea. It's gone. They have no idea that they, you know, where they left it. 
how they left it. It seems impossible to have lost a shoe, but you lost a shoe. <laughs> That's right. Now, the flip side of that is be accepting of disorganization in others. That's your point number six on being a budget Yes, the, the world is a very messy place. And if uh, the one way you can sort of make everything or most things go right on your travels is to do it inside the luxury bubble. And that's not a budget travel scenario. So you just have to be ready. Things go wrong. Trains get mm-hmm. delayed. Your hotel or, you know, your hotel room has kids sleeping in the bed, anything like that. And especially uh, in other countries where people just simply have a different attitude towards uh, organization. Yeah. As a tour guide, I'm always double checking and reconfirming because I've got 25 people's trip relying on it. I take that same carefulness and that same ethic on my own trip when I'm traveling alone. So many travelers are bent out of shape because somebody else screwed up. I had the reservation. I came there, and the car wasn't ready for me. It was at the other office, or, you know, it was closed on Saturday night, and they never told me. Well, these are—you can complain about that, but your trip suffered. It's not their problem. It's your problem. And if you were proactive in reconfirming, you would you would discover these potential problems early enough so you could fix them. And to me, that's an outlook. That's a style. That's a standard operating procedure. And when you're that uh, kind of assuming there's going to be chaos around you, but you're thinking ahead to to navigate through it smoothly, your trip goes much better, doesn't it? That's a. I'm taking notes on that, uh, Rick. I hadn't thought about that. It's yeah. It's, you got to you got to foresee what's going to go wrong and make sure it doesn't. That's what that's what a tour guide does. That's a great. Point. Yeah, I'm so tired of hearing people complain about other people screwed up. Well, of course they screwed up, but you're the one that's suffering. And if you were just more proactive, their screwing up wouldn't have hurt you. Um, don't be mad at them for being disorganized. That's their norm. You're traveling in their zone. Skate through that by being well-organized and thoughtful. Point number seven, highly social. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you make friends, they invite you over to their house for dinner. I mean, that's that's the basic bottom line. Or they take you to the place or recommend the places that they go to that are cheap. The other piece of it is, you know, chatting with people is a great travel activity and doesn't cost anything. Mm. In fact, travel magic is inversely related to how much you're spending. Well, I certainly uh, agree with that. I mean, every dollar you spend, you're sort of pulling yourself further into the travel traveler's bubble. That's the irony, isn't it? If somebody insists on all of this sort of predictability and American-style convenience and efficiency, well, that's convenient and efficient, but you can get that at home. Uh, and you're, you're building a wall between what you traveled all the way to Morocco to experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Kugel. We know Seth from his uh, years of writing The Frugal Traveler at The New York Times. His new book is Rediscovering Travel. We're talking about Seth's eight characteristics that raise your potential to be a budget traveler. And the final point Seth lists, number eight, is fearless. Yeah, fearless in situations where there's nothing actually to fear. There are certain situations in which you have to have some fear or have to be afraid of something. But basically, when we go to another country, we get scared, uh, not always rationally. So the example I give is uh, you get to a new city and the public transportation system is very intimidating and I'm going to get lost and I'm going to get it mugged and blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to take a taxi or I'm going to take an Uber. Uh, but that's not good for the budget traveler. You got to get on that bus and get on that subway. Ah, so it's not fearless like don't be afraid of getting mugged. It's fearless in the sense of grappling with new things. Figure out how to use that loaner yep. bike system in Stockholm. Uh, figure out how to book something online instead of standing in a long, needless line. 
figure out how I'm to amazed use at how, the metro. <laughs> I'm amazed at how socially afraid uh, travelers can be. They they don't want to look stupid, uh, so they end up not asking or not uh, not asking for directions or not trying something, and their trip uh, suffers for it. And so does their pocketbook. Psychologically, that's a huge thing. There. I'm afraid. I, I suppose you're afraid. We can all oh, yeah. be afraid of looking stupid, but realize we're tourists. We're, we're, we're just kids, wide-eyed, adventuring in somebody else's puddle, and uh, we can make mistakes, and nobody's going to fault us for it. We're just there to, to learn and, to, and, to, and to, to experiment and to enjoy making mistakes. And if we have that attitude, we'll make more friends, we'll have better experiences, and we'll spend less money. Amen. Amen. Seth Kugel, such a cool book, Rediscovering Travel, and that's just one, that's just two pages out of it. (laughs) Seth's eight characteristics that raise your potential to be a budget traveler. Thanks so much, Seth, and best wishes with your travel writing. Hey, thanks, Rick. Really appreciate it. Great day to see you in, great world to be in, sun shining brightly, breeze blowing lightly. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. He's been called one of today's greatest travel writers. Pico Iyer joins us next to look at what makes Japan such an intriguing place to call home. And later in the hour, we get advice for visiting Ireland. It's great to have you along as we explore the world each week on Travel with Rick Steves. After more than three decades living in Japan, author Pico Iyer admits that he's constantly surprised by how little he really understands about the country and its people. The British-born and American-raised author has kept notes over the years on what he's noticed around him and how it might explain the contradictions and surprises you'll notice in Japanese society. Pico's just organized and released his notes in a book of observations and provocations. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pico, you write, To my delight, I know far less about Japan now than when I arrived. Why is that? That's the reason I chose to live in Japan, because for my job as a writer, I could be anywhere. But there's something about Japan where the more you find out about it, of course, the more you realize how much you'll never know. And I've chosen to live there for 32 years now on a tourist visa because I genuinely feel like a constantly fascinated and and bewildered tourist. And as you know, Japan's an island society. It's somewhat removed from the rest of the world, and they're not always delighted to have foreigners come in. And that actually makes it even more interesting than a place that would throw its doors open to me. So I have a Japanese wife whom I've known for 32 years. I've raised two entirely Japanese children. I live in a very typical suburban neighborhood, but still I can't begin to pretend I know very much about it. In fact, you wrote in, in your book, Pico, that Japan taught you to say, I wonder more than I think. Well, I love the way that when I talk to Japanese people, they're great listeners. Really, all their emphasis is on making other people comfortable and hearing other people's opinions rather than projecting their own. And I think as somebody who was born and grew up in England and California, I felt I'd been trained to speak a lot and to push myself forwards, but I'd never really been trained to listen Mm. and to be invisible and to try to take in as much as I could around me. As they say in Kyoto, there's a reason that we have two ears and one mouth. We probably should listen at least twice as much as we speak. You weave in the philosophy and the travel and the experience, and that's what distinguishes your writing, I think. You enjoy being bewildered. 
That's what I look for in travel, just as you do, I think, because when I'm at home visiting my mother in California, I think I'm on top of things. I know what's going to happen next. I, I can anticipate my life. But as soon as I'm somewhere foreign, I know that I don't know what's going to be around the next corner. Even in Japan, when I go to my local supermarket, I don't know what I'm going to confront. And it keeps my senses always alive and all of me alert. And, and I love that fact. And when I do talk to my Japanese friends, they're not really giving opinions. They talk more in a form of poetry in terms of images. Mm -hmm. And that expands the imagination instead of shrinking it. You know, you mentioned that people are just so determined to make you comfortable. I had a Japanese girlfriend a, a lifetime ago and traveled around Japan with her, and I was just crazy in love with her. But I could never really believe that she was saying what she believed. And I thought, there's like a wall between us, because I wanted to get beyond that happy. Do you have that feeling with Hiroko at all? Any sort of frustration that she can't really be <laughs> frank with you? If my wife were talking to you, Rick, she would say that I'm the Japanese in the household and she's the Indian. And she probably has more of that problem with me. But initially, yes, and I didn't know when I first met her how much she's interested in me as a representative of America and possibility and freedoms she yeah. couldn't have in Japan and how much she's really drawn to me. But luckily, she's very outspoken. And I think many a foreigner who marries a Japanese person finds that when you're in private and after a little while, all the, the facades fall away and, and you quickly understand very much how they feel, just as you would with a spouse from uh, right. any other place. And I think, you know, maybe one small advantage I had or have is that I grew up in England where, as you know, people are also quite reserved and you don't know really where you stand with them either. No, so I think England is the perfect preparation for Japan in, in that way. In fact, I can't anticipate my wife is also what mm -hmm. makes it interesting. I really don't know who she'll be next week in some ways. To what degree is your Japanese wife your muse for all the creative work that you do? Thank you. I think she is. You know, so when I was writing these two books recently, I thought they were explaining Japan to somebody who hadn't had a chance to spend much time there. But as soon as they came out into the world, all my friends said, you've just written a book about your wife. <laughs> um, and so I suppose because she's the handiest explanation of Japan for me and she's led me through a lot of her country, inevitably she's, if not my muse, she's my sort of Virgil or she's my guide to this wonderfully unfathomable society. But I remember soon after I met her, she said more or less, well, you, Pico, are very difficult in lots of ways, so I have to change myself, Hiroko. And I said, wait a minute, you don't want to change me. She said, no, I can't change you. I have to change myself to adapt to the parts of you that are very impossible. And mm. I was humbled by that. And then I thought, well, I ought to do the same in yeah. return. The parts of her that are difficult, I need to adjust myself to, which is such a Japanese way of doing it, such an un-American way of doing it. But harmony is everything in Japan. And for example, you know, one of my books is a lot about playing ping pong in Japan. And one of the things that surprised me at first is we only play doubles in Japan, never singles. Mm. We change partners every five minutes. So if you do happen to lose, you're likely to win six minutes later with a new partner. And we play best of two sets. So usually there's nobody has lost at all. And it's, as you said, it's very alien to our Western way of thinking. But the longer you're there, the more you feel you're part of this wonderful symphony. The whole society is creating a harmony. And in some ways, that's so much more soothing and, and sane than constant conflict and division and thinking about who's the winner and the loser. I think in the ping pong club, I realized it's not about me trying to win, but trying to make as many people around me as possible feel like they're winners. And so suddenly that takes a lot of the pressure out of things. Pico, do you ever think that some of this fundamental difference of this Japanese sort of sensibility where we can learn so much and it is just so off the wall, but at the same time, 
So like, oh, that is an option. You know, that might even work better. Could that have anything to do with the fact that Japan was probably the most intentionally isolated country for several centuries, while the rest of the world was all getting it together and fighting and everything? Japan made a point to be, until 1850s, completely cut off from the rest of the world. Exactly. For two, more than 220 years. And I think even now, it's more isolated than almost anywhere. It's startling to people to hear that among the 30 countries in Asia, Japan, which is almost the most sophisticated, has a very good educational system. In English proficiency, it's tied for 28th out of 30 countries with Afghanistan. The level of English is lower in Japan than in North Korea or Cambodia, Nepal, Indonesia, much less developed countries. And I think that speaks for the isolation that Japan still wants to maintain. And I think in the last 20 years, we've seen geopolitically in terms of economics and other ways that hasn't helped Japan. But in terms of culture, it's meant that it's a radically distinct place, not like anywhere else. And any of your listeners who steps out of the train in Kyoto tomorrow will know she's not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Kyoto doesn't look like <laughs> South Korea or China or anywhere near it. And and I think for a visitor, that's the beauty of Japan. And as you say, the fruits of the isolation are such that it's almost like another planet and it does everything in very different ways. You know, Pico, like nowhere else in all my travels, when I'm in Japan and I'm alone and I'm confused and befuddled, I, I just stop on a corner and I laugh at myself and I say, this is so delightful. I feel like somebody rearranged all my furniture and, and I don't even know where I can sit down. <laughs> and then people come up and say, you know, you look lost, can I help you? It's an amazing, amazing place to travel. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, author Pico Iyer is sharing some of the insights he's gathered after more than 30 years of living in a small town in western Japan. His latest book is A Beginner's Guide to Japan. You can also read more about Pico's life in suburban Japan in another book he wrote called Autumn Light. We have links to his books and website in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So Pico, you talk about how isolated Japan is but you also mention in your book that you speak Japanese like a two-year-old and you seldom speak English in Japan. That isolates you also. I would think you like to rely on the sophistication of language to communicate, yet you are in a world where you're in a little bit of a disadvantage that way. I am, and I'm embarrassed how little <laughs> Japanese mm. I've learned in my many years there. And as you probably know, even the word for I is different in Japan for women and for men. So the Japanese I've learned, I've picked up from listening to my wife, and it's almost better I don't speak it because I do sound yeah. like a woman and people fall around <laughs> laughing if I, if I speak. But I tell my friends who are visiting Japan that really, I think, as I was saying a minute ago, the more important thing is to learn silence because, as you know, the Japanese like to share as few words as possible. Yeah. And they're really masters of reading body language and the unspoken. And soon after I got there, I realized that an ideal date in Japan involves going to a movie with a friend, taking it in with rapt attention, going home, and never saying a word about the movie. Because if you start talking about the movie, you're likely to be divided. If you're just quiet, you're close. And silence is the language of communion in some ways, and mm. words is the language of conflict. So in many ways... It's a blessing even for my neighbors that I don't speak a lot of Japanese, and I think they feel comfortable with that. Japan is the rare country where if a foreigner speaks very good Japanese, people aren't happy, but they feel a little unsettled or trespassed upon. 
so I almost deliberately have have mm. contained myself linguistically, and and I've gone there to learn about everything that isn't said, but is implicit or just a gesture and a, um, a small movement is what communicates strongly there. So Pico, it's like a cultural playground to be in Japan, and it sounds like for years you've just been taking notes. And with this new book of yours, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, you've collected these notes, and it's called Observations and Provocations. Why provocations? I'm deliberately saying contentious things about the difference between America and Japan. For example, at one section I say that when I first arrived in Japan, I thought, well, America is the land of can, of possibility, of the future tense. Mm -hmm. Japan is the land of must, of obligation and responsibility Ah. in the present tense. And I don't know if that's really true or not, but I thought it's an interesting idea to play with. And I love the what you said just now about an adult playground or a cultural playground mm-hmm. because I do think of Japan for a visitor as almost an amusement park mm-hmm. for adults. I mean, constantly fascinating. And I think one of the things, again, that I say to my friends when they visit is the things that are most foreign are often the things you expect to be most familiar. In other words, I tell my friends, go to a baseball game when you're in Japan. For one thing, the people are as boisterous and open-hearted and welcoming in a baseball stadium as they're shy and reserved on the streets because you're part of the team. And for another thing, baseball, the all-American pastime, becomes the all-Japanese pastime when you see it in Tokyo or Osaka. Games end in a tie if the score is level after 12 innings. People smile when they strike out. Uh, They talk about two and three counts instead of three and two counts. And so even something you think you know because you've grown up in the United States becomes something absolutely different and exciting there. Pico Iyer's books have been translated into 20 languages, and his TED Talks have been viewed by millions. He divides his time between Santa Barbara in California and a small suburb of Nara in Japan. He's collected his observations from the streets, stores, temples, and homes of Japan in his newly released A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pico's also been teaching journalism at Princeton and just concluded a stint as guest director at the Telluride Film Festival. He's also the first writer-in-residence at the legendary Raffles Hotel in Singapore. His website is picoirejourneys.com. You wrote about the bento box. That was one of my favorite little intimate things about traveling in Japan was the bento box. Everything is in its place. Can you describe a bento box and what that indicates to you about Japanese society? Yes. So the classic bento box is a beautifully square box of wood or lacquer with all three courses in separate compartments. You have your soup, you have a little dessert, you have your main course, and perhaps you have a salad. I suppose it described like that, it sounds like a meal on an airplane, but actually in Japan, it's, mm. it's an exquisite thing. And I think what we think of as a contradiction, the Japanese think of as complementarity. Mm. In other words, they believe in serving all three courses at the same time, and that's not a contradiction between the dessert and, and the first course. It's just that each one serves its its function. And I say that because, for example, in the last week of every year, on December the 24th, my Japanese neighbors go into Christian churches to listen to Beethoven and Handel. And one week later, they all go to the Buddhist temple to hear a bell solemnly struck 108 times. And a few hours after that, they go to a Shinto shrine to start an auspicious note for the new year. And some people will say, well, wait a minute, how can they in all sincerity, go in the same eight days to a Christian church and a Buddhist temple and a Shinto shrine. And I think a Japanese person would say, it's like going to your brother, your father, and your mother. Each of them serves a different 
function in your life, each has something different to offer, and it's not a contradiction, but we have something to gain from everything. And the bento box is kind of an example of that for me. And so mm. is when you were talking about choice. I was thinking how in a sushi bar, for example, they have the omekase system, whereby you don't order anything, and you just defer to the chef's choice, and he decides mm. what he's going to serve you for your next 11 courses. And again, to us, it may sound like an infringement on our freedom, but to a Japanese person, it means liberation. And why don't I put myself in the hands of an expert? The chef, he's consecrated his whole life to knowing what's going to taste mm. good. He probably has a much better sense of what to choose than I do. And there's a kind of modesty in that. It's another of the qualities I find so beautiful in Japan. Everything we're talking about, it kind of weaves together. It's a fascinating brilliance of this society that can be exasperating, but at the same time inspirational. You were talking about the ease at which Japanese people can go into different places of worship. And if you think Confucian sort of sensibilities, you wrote that human relations are the closest thing people have to God. And that would sort of explain why manners are kind of, you call it a kind of sacrament. People are just religiously polite. Exactly. And you could say that they're bowing to the God in everyone around them. And I've noticed when I'm in Japan, if I'm on a phone call, I start bowing to the yes. telephone. And any of my friends from California who stepped in <laughs> would think this guy's gone crazy. I found the but same actually, thing. It's I would bow as yes. I leave the room in Japan. And I thought, am I just becoming a caricature of the people in the culture that I'm in? <laughs> no, it's like contagious. And I didn't realize it, but it was that human relations are the closest thing people have to God. Yes. And also, one of the beautiful things in Japan is they believe that everything has a spirit, a table, a glass of water, a piece of paper. And my wife sometimes tells me that when she was a little girl, if she kicked the dinner table in frustration, her father would say, you have to apologize. That table did nothing to hit you. That table has a spirit. Kicking the table is like kicking your brother. And you should treat it with respect. And I loved what you said about contagiousness, because I noticed soon after I got to Japan, whenever I walked down the street there, I reflexively pick up any trash I see. I never did that in California when <laughs> right. I was work living in New York City. But you absorb these beautiful qualities from your neighbors in Japan, I think. And you also wrote in your book how Hiroko took more emotional shots of stuffed animals. Your wife got very emotional and artistic and creative taking photographs of stuffed animals, whereas humans are almost generic. And, and it's always the peace sign and the, and the little smile for all the selfies. It's a fascinating flip-flop. And flip-flop is the perfect description of Japan. I had an example of that just an hour ago here in London. As we were coming to talk to you, we were in an elevator, and Hiroko suddenly said, this is Bob. And I looked around. It was empty. She'd given a name to the elevator in our hotel, and suddenly it wasn't an elevator. <laughs> I was able to you know, treat it again with more respect. Mm. When we get into a train, she'll say, this is Tom. Mm. And somehow that makes a change in the way that you see everything around you. You live half your time in Santa Barbara, which I think has got to be one of the most beautiful places in America to live, but you are enthusiastically half your time away from the big, exciting Tokyo and Japan, but just in a small town, and listening to you talk, I can just see how you've cobbled together the flip-flop of two great lifestyles, and then you get to write about it. What sort of basic sentiment or outlook on life you've picked up in Japan and woven into your personal outlook that you're most thankful for? I think a gift for appreciation. I notice that even when my Japanese friends go to the dirtiest parts of New York City, say, they filter out the dirt and they find 
things to inspire them and mm. to make them happy and to look at with wonder. And I think as a traveler, that's one of the great gifts I would like to learn. Uh, in some ways, to accentuate the positive and to see what I could learn from any place I visit. Mm. And to accentuate the positive when we travel... I do think we see the world as a more beautiful place and the diversity in this world something to celebrate. Pico Iyer, author of A Beginner's Guide to Japan and many, many more books. Thank you so much for joining us and um, continued uh, happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Up next, tour guides from Ireland. Take your calls at 877-333-7425 as we update our notes on visiting the Emerald Isle. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's a destination whose stone walls and many shades of green cloak the island in a timeless beauty. But Ireland is also a modern, progressive country where there's always something new and interesting to explore. To get us ready for visiting Ireland, we're joined by two tour guides from Ireland. Declan Field was raised in County Cork and in Dublin. Irish-American Kieran O'Hare attended Trinity College in Dublin, and he divides his time now between Ireland and the U.S. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Rick. Declan, in general, what's new for travelers in Ireland? People who'd been to Ireland maybe 20 years ago would have thought that the food in Ireland would have been rather mediocre, whereas now, due in part to the Celtic Tiger that we had about 20 years ago, a lot of very, very talented chefs came from all over the world Mm -hmm. because there was plenty of work available for people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And they started up some amazing restaurants. So the food in Ireland is... is And I've certainly noticed that updating our Ireland book. I mean, you don't just look for tired fish and chips anymore. You can get some gastropubs. Absolutely. Uh, Entire towns are known for their gastronomy. Kinsale in the south of Ireland is a great spot for that. Kinsale particularly, yeah. But actually, everywhere you can find good restaurants these days. Kieran, when uh, Declan was saying uh, during the Celtic Tiger economy... Uh, there was a lot of money and a lot of affluence and a lot of great food, a lot of uh, creative restaurants popping up. The economy goes up and down and up and down. Where's the economy today in Ireland? I think it's enjoying a period of relative prosperity. You know, we can look at indicators like the strength of the property market in Dublin, which has been going through a boom that could even be characterized. You know, a lot of people are fearing that it's a bubble. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, you know, if you look at rates of construction, Dublin's become a very vibrant city and certainly... U.S. corporations continue to move in droves on the tech side and the banking side to headquarters in Dublin. So originally, uh, people would move to Ireland for cheap labor. It's an extremely low corporate tax rate all around. Oh, so and that's friendly. Right. More than the wages of a corporate-friendly tax yeah, structure. Very much 12.5% so. corporate tax rate in Ireland. So Ireland kind of has that as their a gimmick for goosing the economy, enticing corporations to come in. Yeah, but it's also a nice place for young people to come and, and work. Some very vibrant cities such as Dublin, Cork, Galway, where there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of arty stuff going on, a lot of music and cultural things that would attract young people to come over and live in Ireland. Also, an 18 and 19 year old uh, could come over to Ireland and get a job with a tech company starting at, you know, 30 grand a year. You know, there, there's some very, very good salaries out there now for, for young people, you know. Hey, well, we're talking about what's new in Ireland. Declan, you're an artist, you're a sculptor. Uh, when I was last in Ireland, I was really impressed by stepping into the shops and the artisans, whether they're weavers or painters or sculptors. There's lots going on. What's a tip for connecting with the artistic community in Ireland in our travels? Well, I would say definitely whilst in Dublin to go to the National Gallery. It's an absolute jewel of a gallery on a world level. It's a small gallery, manageable to do in one day. It's not like the Louvre. It's not like the Prado. It has a concentrated collection of some amazing works ranging from early Irish art to mid-20th century. 
Mm. There's a more contemporary gallery then up on Parnell Square, uh, which would be the Municipal Gallery, and that has got a, a beautiful collection of um, Impressionist art. It's just a beautiful neighbourhood. You've got the, it is the, the National History Museum. You've got uh, all, all sorts of... The National of, Library. Uh, yeah, oh, the National so, Gallery, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Trinity College with yeah, the Book of Kells. Right there, yeah. So much. Kieran, when we think of what's happening today, what's the vibe? Uh, historically, people have gone to Doolin, they've gone to Ennis, they've gone to Galway, they've gone to uh, Dingle for traditional Irish folk music. Is that still essentially the same, or, or what's the, the vibe for a professional traditional Irish folk musician like yourself? Irish traditional music has probably never been in a stronger place than it is today. There's great interest um, among young people. It's become widely recognized as an art form in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, my instrument is an instrument called the Illin Pipes, which is the Irish bagpipes, and uh, UNESCO recognized uh, Illin Piping, indigenous art form, as part of the intangible cultural heritage of the world last year. Yeah, so and, where do uh, you go for that? If you're, if you're a tourist, is it everywhere, or is there some towns that are better than others? There are some regions where it's easier to find, where it's been historically stronger. Certainly the places you mentioned, counties Clare and Kerry, have been very popular, as well as a very strong tradition in Dublin. And when you want to enjoy traditional quality folk music, get local advice. Uh, there's a buzz when there's a band in town. And I was always struck in Ireland, you could watch a band on TV, and it looks like they're, uh, they're ready for superstardom, and then the next day they're playing in, in Ennis, or they're playing in Galway. It's a small community, and if you want to connect with great musicians, you can do it in the pubs. Absolutely. I'm, you know, that's the center of social life, cultural life, musical life. And All you it can costs find... is a pint of beer. That's right. That's a great thing about Ireland. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Declan Field. We're talking with Kieran O'Hare about what's going on in Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Kimberly's calling from Pittsburgh. Kimberly, are you thinking of yeah. vacationing in Ireland? I am. I'm wondering where some particularly um, unique Ireland-style um, hiking would be. I don't think of Ireland normally in terms of hikes, but I'm sure it has some really neat, unique places hmm. for an outdoor enthusiast. So what are your recommendations for that? Well, there's certainly a lot of greenery to enjoy. Uh, Declan, for a hiker, what do you like? If you based yourself in Dublin and then went south down to an area called Wicklow, there is a long hiking trail about 120 kilometers long called the Wicklow Way. There are uh, hiking trails all around the country. There's another one in Kerry. The, the Wicklow Way would be more um, kind of valleys and forests and hilltops. So gentle. Uh, gentle, fairly wild countryside, mm-hmm. away from major centres of civilization, away from cities and towns, and it kind of scoots along through forests, lakes, uh, valleys. Beautiful. Now, in England, you'd have a pub whenever you were thirsty, it would seem to happen. Would this be more wild than that, or will you have that kind of connection with... There, the, there, there would be a similar connection with pubs along the Wicklow Way. So also. you need a meal, you need a drink, you've got that, yeah. and then B&Bs you can stay at along in Absolutely. villages nearby. Absolutely, along the way. Yeah. What's yeah. another hike? Another a nice area that I, I would particularly like would be the Bearer Peninsula down in West Cork, and some beautiful hikes around the Bearer Peninsula. Again, along hilltops, there's no... High mountains in Ireland. The highest mountain in Ireland is only about a, th- a thousand meters. Bera. Bera. So, so we know Dingle Peninsula. We know the uh, Ring of the Kerry. I, the Ring of Kerry, and, and then, then there's another peninsula it's further south in the southwest. Yeah, yeah. What is the town for headquarters for that? Castletown Bear would be one of the main towns. You can base yourself in Castletown Bear and then go hiking out from there around the Bear Peninsula. It'd be more wild than the Ring of Kerry, and maybe less frequented. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a personal favorite of mine, the Bear Because Ring of Kerry is sort of the domain of a lot of tour buses. A lot of tour buses. Just caravans of tour buses every day. Yeah. Uh, Dingle Peninsula, a favorite of mine you could hike. I think uh, it lends itself to a bicycle ride around yeah. the Dingle Peninsula. 
Kieran, any ideas for hiking from your experience? Yeah, two come to mind immediately. Um, I have family connections in County Clare, so the Burren, which is a beautiful mm. um, limestone environment in northern County Clare, full of Arctic flora. And then there's a beautiful new sort of greenway hiking area um, in County Mayo based out of Westport, I believe. So Burren, B-U-R-R-E-N. That's right. It's a wonderland for a naturalist who, who enjoys looking at little flowers and, and little critters and so on. You do have to be careful. You can break your ankle in that kind of rock formation. Yeah, there's nothing quite like it. It's almost a lunar landscape. Describe that. The floor, rather than being covered with, um, with soil as you expect the ground to be, is covered with... Uh, ridges of limestone, which often fill up with water. So uh, there's you, no you place quite like it. You can't looking at your feet. You've you, got to look when you're walking. Well, but when you look up, you see these amazing yeah. uh, ancient sites, uh, portal dolmens, old sorts of uh, What's, know, what's a portal dolmen? A portal dolmen, um, just to see it, it looks like usually three large stones sort of stacked in a so, two base stones so two and one on top. two supports and a flat table on top. Yeah, there's sort of almost a Stonehenge kind of look to it, but uh, they are basically ancient sites. Uh, the most famous one is in the borough. Now, this and it's is, called it Pulmabon. almost looks like a little um, carport. You could park a small car under it almost. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But you got to remember, what, three, four, five thousand years ago, it was covered with dirt. It was the structure of an underground tomb, is that right? Yeah, there's, I mean, sorts of, there's various theories about how these were used and what they represent, but that's one of them, definitely. Right. You're likely to encounter these little reminders that there have been civilizations in Ireland since long before Christ. Absolutely. The most famous hike in Ireland is up Crowpatrick. Declan, talk about the tortuous hike. Up. Tortuous hike of, of Crowpatrick. Um, you started from a little place called Murrisk, which is uh, only uh, about five or six kilometers out of Westport. You would start uh, at basically at sea level, mm-hmm. and then uh, in about an hour and a half it takes to get to the summit of Crowpatrick across very, very rough, screedy ground and quite dangerous ground towards the top, uh, very, very loose uh, rock. What's the history and why are there all these um, so, church groups going up and so on? Because uh, St. Patrick came to Ireland in 432. It's thought that he went up and he spent 40 days and 40 nights, as we've been told, up on uh, Crowpatrick. When he came down from Crowpatrick, the myth goes, he chased all the snakes out of Ireland. So that's where that happened, Crowpatrick. From Crowpatrick. So every July on the third weekend of July, there's the Reek Sunday, it's called, because the Crowpatrick's also called the Reek. Reek means mountain in Ireland. So um, on Reek Sunday, you have upwards of 30,000 people climbing that mountain. Some of them doing it barefoot. Barefoot. Some of them doing it on their hands and knees. Oh, my goodness. Now, I've driven by there several times, and there's, you know, it's a tourist area on the bottom. You've got a pub and a shop and a parking lot and a nature information zone and a guy who rents walking sticks. That's right. And then you look up and you see it's like a swath of well-worn land along this ridge that arcs right up to the summit. And it occurs to you that literally centuries of pilgrims have been climbing up there on their knees, on their bloody feet, and now tourists with their tennis shoes going all the way to the top. It's almost like a piece of land art when you, when you look at it in some ways. Uh, you've, you've got uh, hundreds of thousands of people that have been walking on that piece of ground, and they've etched this line into the, into the landscape. It is so dramatic. And it is, if I remember, it's on the west coast north of Galway? No, uh, well, it, it's just outside Westport, so in County Mayo, okay. right on the coast. Kimberly, you've got lots of hiking options there. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for calling. Let us know how it goes. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Our guides to Ireland on Travel with Rick Steves are Declan Field and Kieran O'Hare. Kieran is a specialist in the Illin Pipes and performs with the Irish music trio Open the Door for Three. Declan also works as an artist, and many of his welded steel sculptures are on display in Burgundy in France. They're taking your calls for visiting Ireland at 877-333-7425. 
Deborah's on the line from Fairbanks in Alaska, a place with mountains much taller than you'd find in Ireland. Deborah, right. thanks for your call. <laughs> yeah. My husband and I are heading off to Europe, and we're stopping in Ireland, and we have three days in Dublin before we continue our travels. And we have our two grandchildren with us who are 10 and 15. We have been to Ireland before, and we know what we like to do, um, but I'm wondering what might maybe something that we've missed that they might enjoy doing. Okay, let's uh, think about this. You got Deborah's got three days in Dublin. Uh, I would imagine it's the first time for her kids. They're 10 and 15 years old. Kieran, what are some activities that would be fun for kids? Certainly the first place I think I would take kids would be the inside of Trinity College. It's got a strange resemblance to Hogwarts from my point of view, and uh, that's a great place. It's sort of a grounds for beginning to explore the city center of Dublin, which is an exciting and bustling place, far more densely populated and active than any American city. Mm -hmm. Um, So that alone would be an amazing eye-opener for children, I should think. And Declan? There's a brand new museum um, right on the River Liffey called Epic, and I think kids would absolutely love Epic because it's interactive, it's a state of the art, and um, it would really, really grab your grandchildren's attention. And Epic is all about the Irish diaspora. About the Irish diaspora around and the world, yeah. You can ri- remind your kids there's maybe three or five million Irish people on the island today, but 30 million Irish Americans. And you're learning not only about Ireland, but you're also learning about the world. And just across the street from Epic, there's the Jeannie Johnson. The Jeannie Johnson is a millennium project that was built down in the southwest of Ireland, a ship. During the years of the famine, basically the famine was from 1845 to 1850 in Ireland, there were hundreds of thousands of people that left and went over to Canada and the U.S., and they went on these ships, and uh, there was a reconstruction of one of these ships made, and she's called the Jeannie Johnson. The reason they made her is because she had a ship's doctor, And she also had the same crew that went across and not one person died on that ship, whereas the other ships that brought people across were called coffin ships and many thousands of people died on those. So the Jeannie Johnson's reconstruction there on the Liffey, your grandchildren could get onto a boat and actually move back into the mid-1800s. And there's role-playing people in there that can can take your kids right back. You can also maybe take your grandchildren a little bit out of their comfort zone, but it's very, very educational. I think so, yeah, Yeah. yeah. One thing I did was a very touristy thing with my family, and we loved it. It was just an Irish folk uh, dance, uh, a river dance kind of evening. And it yeah. was uh, at a big hotel. Uh, I forget the place, but uh, it was a delightful evening. That was in the Arlington Hotel, right on, on, on the Liffey there. Yeah. I'm not sure if they're still doing that, but um, it's sort of an experience where you'd, when you'd get a meal, and there would be then Irish dancers during and after the meal. And it's quite, the food is okay, but you're really, you're really going there for the dancing and the music. Kieran, you can go to the stadium and actually let your kids uh, take a whack at hurling. Sounds like a good idea. The uh, fastest field sport in the world is hurling, and it was recognized by UNESCO as a part of the intangible cultural heritage of the world, and it's far, I suppose it would be closest to lacrosse to an American and the, mindset. And the, the kids can stand in a little cage and take that hurling stick and whack the ball, and these are hands-on experiences for, for kids especially, yeah, kids fantastic. of all ages that are a lot of fun. So there's lots to do with your kids. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Deborah. Good luck with your family travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Declan Field and Kieran O'Hare. We're talking about what's new in Ireland. Kathy's calling in from Gig Harbor in Washington. Kathy, thanks for your call. Thank you. So we like the freedom of driving. Um, however, um, we realize it's on the other side of the road. Not, not the wrong side, but the other side. Thank you. <laughs> and um, looked at the Irish trains. They don't seem to go everywhere. So I'm wondering um, your thoughts on how difficult it would be for someone that's like upper 60s, early 70s to be able to drive in an unfamiliar way. 
Well, um, I've met many, many people on the years. I've been bringing people around Ireland that are doing it themselves in their own hired motor cars. And they've never really had much problem. You just have to just take things easy, sort of slow down a bit and just take things easy and, and think about which side of the road you, you stay on. <laughs> that's right. If, if you're in a near head-on collision, you're probably the one that's in the wrong side. So be in a humble frame of mind. And I would remind people, Ireland's a small island, but don't think you can get around as quickly as you can get around in Germany as far as miles per hour because there's small roads, they're windy roads, there's a lot of traffic, there's animals, and you just take it easy. That's the beautiful thing about Ireland. If it's very scenic, stop and get out for a few minutes. Between the main cities, then, we've got a, an extensive network of motorways. So you can actually get from Dublin to Cork um, now in, a, in about two and a half hours. It used to take five hours when, mm. when, I, when I was a kid. Uh, but then, once, obviously, once you get off the motorway, you're, you're then on much smaller roads. And what I do, because I, I live in France and work in Ireland, when I arrive in Ireland, when I get into the car, I say, keep left, keep left, keep left. A mantra in my head. <laughs> but especially when, I, when I'm leaving a petrol station, for example, I'd say, keep left, keep left, keep left. Because <laughs> you don't want to find yourself on the right. <laughs> Kieran, advice for drivers, uh, tourists driving in Ireland? You know, there's always, anytime you're coming out of the airport with your hired car, there's signs reminding you to keep left. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, the steering wheel is where steering wheels always go. The pedals, you know, it's still the right pedal for gas and the left for a brake. The Thank only goodness. thing that's different is that the gear shift is on your left and it's usually an automatic transmission car. Yeah. So if you can just remember to, to be on the left, everything else pretty much sorts itself out if you yeah. take a breath and yeah. take your time. And uh, Kathy was talking about train versus car. Uh, Ireland does not have the most extensive train system. I think a lot of it is sort of uh, Dublin-related. You can go cross the grain with buses. Well, you, you can find out from Dublin. Uh, the, the train system will take you to Cork and the southwest, down to Kerry, and across to Galway and up to Belfast. Mm -hmm. But then if you want to get to more kind of precise destinations, mm -hmm. um, you would then have to get a bus from the train station. For example, if you wanted to go to see the Burren that Kieran mentioned earlier yep. on, you would take a train to Galway, and then you would take a bus down to the Burren. You know, it varies from country to country, but I would say in Ireland, because of the uh, public transportation infrastructure and the remoteness of a lot of the great sites and attractions that we want to see, you get more value out of a rental car than in a lot of other countries. I think so so, I think so go yeah. for that. Having said that, Dublin and Belfast are the two big urban centers where you don't want a car, and they're so beautifully connected now by a fast train that That's you right. can easily do Dublin and Belfast by train, and they can even take the train to the West Coast and then pick up your car in Galway. But the thing about Ireland, I would say it's nice to see the cities, but the real part of Ireland is outside the cities. Absolutely. Kathy, I hope that gives you some good tips. It does. Thank you. You bet. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about what's new in Ireland with our guests and our guides, Declan Field and Kieran O'Hare. Kieran, what's some little anecdote or insight that gives us a, an intimacy with the Irish psyche and the Irish culture? Well, wit is a currency in Ireland, and there's an anecdote about a man who was stopped on the street by an American tourist and asked for directions for how to get to the next town over, and he scratched his head and looked at the ground, and he looked up at the tourist and said, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here at all. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I love Ireland, because you can understand <laughs> the local guys on the street and you pick up that wit. Declan. Well, I suppose Ireland would be known for its welcome, and uh, one of the lovely phrases we have in Ireland for welcoming people is Cade Mila Falcha, which is 100,000 welcomes. Cade Mila Falcha. And then to say thank you in Irish. Gorov Mahagat. Gorov Mahagat. Declan and Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Rick. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. 
by Tim Tappen, Isaac Kaplan Wilner, and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the BBC in London and the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.